Hi, my name is Melissa Herbst-Krelovitz. I'm an associate professor here at the College of Medicine, Phoenix at the University of Arizona. And I'm in the Department of Basic Medical Sciences and Obstetrics and Gynecology. Hi, I'm Kate Rhodes. I'm a research scientist at the Tucson University of Arizona campus in the Department of Immunobiology. And Femtech to me is studying the vaginal microbiome in the context of health and disease in the female reproductive tract. And Femtech to me is understanding bacterial adaptation to the female reproductive tract. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. In today's episode, I interviewed Dr. Kate Rhodes and Dr. Melissa Erbs Kralovitz. Kate is a research scientist studying the interplay between the pathogen gonorrhea and the microbiome of the female reproductive tract. She's also working with Dr. Melissa, who is an associate professor in the Department of Basic Medical Sciences, as well as the director of Women's Health Research Program for Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Phoenix. In this interview, we discuss my favorite topics, bacteria and vaginas, and <laughs> all, all of my favorite things are in this episode. But, you know, what we really discuss is what's happening to the STI rates in the United States, consequences of gonorrhea for women, and the interaction between the vaginal and gut microbiomes. This is a great opportunity to learn more about the vaginal microbiome and its connection to other health conditions that are impacting women. You can learn more about Kate and Melissa's research at herbslevovitzlab.com. Don't worry, we'll drop that link in the show notes, as well as a bunch of other links to their research and uh, work that they're doing. Enjoy the episode. Hey, ladies, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Hi, thanks for having us. It is awesome to have two scientists on with me. You guys are going to totally bring me back to my academic days. Excited <laughs> to jump into this. Um, and I know we have a lot to cover in two guests, so we're just going to jump right in. I want to hear a little bit about your backgrounds um, and, you know, where you're from, what did you study, and, you know, when when did you know it was women's health that you wanted to dedicate your life to? Melissa, let's kick it off with you. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, so I was raised here in Arizona. Um, so thankfully, I've uh, made my way back over time. Um, so I was raised here, rural raised. Um, and uh, I went to college in Colorado, uh, went to UTMB for graduate school and was in a really interdisciplinary program called Experimental Pathology. And so I was able to really get a interdisciplinary training on host microbe interactions. Um, and I started there um, researching women's health and the epithelial cells that line the female reproductive tract and really became intrigued um, and kind of moved that on to my postdoc uh, where I developed some three-dimensional models of the female reproductive tract and was able to study 
um, within the context of that in vitro model, those host microbe interactions. Um, so I have a PhD from UTMB, and I am now an associate professor here in our basic medical sciences department. I'm cross-appointed in obstetrics and gynecology. And then I'm able to run a very translational research program that we actually couple basic science research with more clinical research as well. So kind of bridging that gap. How so big really is your cool. laboratory? I have the the spectrum of trainees. So I have high schoolers during the summer, and then I have undergraduates, graduate students, med students, because we are a college of medicine. Um, and then I have postdocs, and I work very closely with OBGYN residents and fellows. So I love I, I, it really runs the gamut. And it's really fun because we have our trainees kind of also peer-to-peer training other mm-hmm. trainees. So it works out really well. Mm, I love that. And all those different classifications of student, high schooler, OBGYN, doctor, postdoc, they all need to know about the female reproductive tract and what's happening. So I'm so glad you're <laughs> you're involving all these different people, all these different hats. Kate, let's go over to you. You know, what's your background and when did you know that women's health is what you wanted to work on? Okay, uh, so I... Like Melissa, um, grew up in a rural community, but I'm from Southern Missouri. Um, so I did my undergrad there, went out to Colorado for grad school, wound up in Florida for more grad school. Um, and so while I was working on my PhD, I, I'm more on the basic science um, side of things. So I was doing my PhD on antimicrobial resistance. And, you know, the further into that I got, the more I realized, like, I'm really interested in this whole, you know, idea of bacterial adaptation. Mm. Um, and so I started looking for postdocs and that's when I found my current boss's lab, Maggie. So, um, and so the focus of our lab is to try to understand bacterial adaptation, but in the context of sexually transmitted infection. Right. So that's how I came into the whole women's health world was, um, just following this curiosity about how these organisms are able to, you know, adapt and overcome this really inhospitable environment. And the the female reproductive tract is a fascinating place to study that because it is so complex. Um, so I've been a postdoc in Maggie's lab. I just switched over to being a research scientist. Um, Congratulations. Looking, oh, thank, yeah, thank you. Well, <laughs> You're like, I'm not a student. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that just happened this month, but I'm, I'm on the job market looking for um, a spot to start my own lab. So that's what I want to do is be like Maggie and Melissa and kind of you know, start my own group, push push ahead with some of the projects that I'm really excited about. It's still in women's health. Yeah. Yeah. Still going to be working on sexually transmitted infection. I love it. I have so many questions already for both of you. Thank God we still have 30 minutes. Um, because I want to know about the hospital, uh, hus- hus- I was going to say hospitality of the female reproductive <laughs> tract. Let's just leave it like that. Hospitality. Um, <laughs> well, you know, um, Kate, since you, you know, you were doing microbes specifically first and then it was microbes with the female health, um, angle, which by the way, I love microbes, like bacteria, viruses, my first love. Like, they're so cool. My PhD was in E. coli, bacteria all the way. So, big fan. Um, What's it like being a female health researcher versus researching in uh, just regular bacteria that didn't have to do with vaginas? You know, have you Mm -hmm. noticed anything different between your your experiences? Uh, (laughs) I mean, I guess kind of flippantly, the first thing that I noticed was that, uh, you get really comfortable with talking about uncomfortable subjects in front of large groups of people. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but you know, I think that the, the, the roots of all of it are just people are really excited about understanding basic phenomena and, you know, working from the women's health angle is, is, you know, there's like an immediate contextual application to everybody's life or at least to half of the population. Right. Um, so I think that has been kind of cool. It's, it's that we're working on something that's not necessarily so abstract that, mm-hmm. you know, you can see, you can see the connections to, you know, human health, like on a day-to-day basis right off the bat. And that's been pretty cool. Nice. And then, you know, Melissa, how about you? Have you found it, you know, challenging, maybe even just to start your laboratory on this topic? Are you one of the firsts or the onlys? Like, Tell me a little bit about your experience. I feel like pioneering, honestly, in women's health research. Um, Well, we pioneered our three-dimensional models, but there's a lot of people working in this arena. And I have a a lot of amazing colleagues that I can recommend that you interview next uh, if you'd like. So um, I'm really lucky to work with a great community, uh, mostly of women, but there are a lot of male researchers as well. Um, I would say the the biggest thing um, in women's health is just, you know, getting that out there and getting the interest from larger groups that aren't necessarily in women's health, right? Mm -hmm. So being invited to give these big talks at a more general meeting is really exciting. And um, there have been other amazing female scientists that have paved the way in that regard, Um, just like uh, Kate mentioned in terms of, um, you know, basic biology and things like that. And so there, I think there's a couple different strategies that you need to use. Um, it's either you're doing like hardcore basic science, but it applies somehow um, mm-hmm. to women's health. Um, and then the other way that I've kind of um, utilized lately is to really push the envelope in terms of technology and omics. So we're doing a lot of multi-omics analyses and then partnering with all-star, you know, bioinformaticians that can help to elevate our science and make it something that people really are interested in just from a bioinformatics standpoint, Mm -hmm. but then it's women's health. So it's kind of coupling your women's health research and you have to be scrappy in this in this field <laughs> in order to get funding you just do you have yeah. to be creative on how you pitch your because not everyone's going to be interested and a lot of the review panels are still composed of old white men so you know you have to make it captivating to them to want to research and fund Melissa, this is such an important topic. Um, Mm -hmm. We talk about lack of funding all the time on the show in our community group, and it's from every bucket of money, right? And we typically talk about angels and venture capital and private equity. You, I think, is a really interesting story, and I'd love to, that's why I want to double tap in this, grants from the government. We have Mm -hmm. talked on the show about the lack of an institute for women's health. And so Mm -hmm. um, I've also heard people say, like, yeah, I wanted to study the endometrial lining of the uterus none of my grants were funded until I said, oh, by the way, we're also going to look at intestines, endometrial lining. And they were like, awarded. And she was like, God damn, you know, like, why do I have to look at intestines just so I can reverse engineer it back to the uterus? So have you found that to be the case? Absolutely. hundred percent. Yeah. Tell me more. I definitely definitely agree with the Institute on Women's Health. We've been kind of talking about that as a community. And um, I think that's really important. We have an Office of Research of Women's Health and NIH, but they don't have funding behind them. 
go figure. So, you know, that's what we need to organize some of these concepts and to have a home for those women's health conditions that are understudied um, and underrepresented in science. So hundred percent. One of the things we've noticed in the tech world is that when there's like a health conference. I just was at the health conference in Las Vegas a few weeks ago. And, you know, there was a panel about unicorns, billion dollar companies. And there was like 300 people sitting down. Next panel was on maternal mortality. Essentially all the men stood up and left. And, you know, and I've asked men, Hey, like, why don't you come to these things? Why don't you attend this stuff? Why don't you listen in? And they, and it's almost like, they're like, Oh, well, that's, that's for the women, you know? And obviously we all know on the show that is not the case. This is everyone's health. You should care regardless of what you have between your legs and your experience as an academic, like let's say journal club, it's your week and you're doing an article, you know, you're representing an article on the vagina. Do you find attendance is like mostly women versus men or in academia? It's more like um, blended because they're all scientists. Did you want to go Kate or you want me? Yeah. I mean, I, Speaking of like a, you know, trainee, I mm-hmm. think, I think there's some generational divide there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so think I, I, at least, you know, the, the small amount of time that I've been doing this, I feel like that people are getting better about, or, you know, both sexes mm-hmm. have important health issues that are specific to their biology. And, yeah. you know, and people are, are starting to like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know, like you were saying, this is everybody's issue. Mm-hmm. We should all pay attention. Um, so at least in in like a training environment, I think that the the interest is there, right? Um, at general meetings, you know, it it may not be the case, and some of that comes down to just you know, people go to these meetings and they have a specific thing that they're interested in, and they're only going to pay attention to that, regardless of you know anything else. And some of it, some of it is divided along the you know women's health issues versus other health issues mm-hmm. divide, but. I don't know. I I do think that there is a little bit of a, of a split still where, you know, like you were saying, the men stand up and leave. Um, But I I do think that it's at least in my cohort of trainees, I think that it's getting, the attitudes are improving, getting better. Definitely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's some amazing men in femtech and I always tell people that we're Mm -hmm. predominantly female, but man, the men we got, they're the best of the best, you know, they're like, really empathetic and, you know, kind and respectful. Like we we're some of the best guys are, are in our industry. Um, Kate, I'd love to dive deeper into your research specifically. Um, okay. And feel free ladies to, whenever I ask all these questions, if there's a unique, like uh, women's health, like caveat or bias, like throw it in there. Cause I think this is, it's really fascinating of all of our interviews talking about investor bias with them being like, is this really a problem? Or like, is that market mm-hmm. really that big? And then to hear you guys talk about from the academic point of view, like grants and academic journals, all that stuff is really interesting. So Kate, um, could you please tell us about STIs for females in the US? Tell us a little bit, like, just give us the 411. What are the rates of well, infection in females, percentage, et cetera? Right. So uh, globally, there are about 400 million cases of sexually transmitted infection just across the board. Um, about 80 million of those are gonorrhea. And so that's what our lab works on specifically is Neisseria gonorrhea causes the sexually transmitted infection gonorrhea. Um, so in the US, there are about uh, probably about 600,000 cases um, every year. And we're seeing an increase in cases of gonorrhea. Um, so 
you know, looking at like overall rates of, of infection of all sexually transmitted infections in the U.S., um, the, the estimates right now are about uh, one in five people have an SDI, have an active case of something. Um, and, and that's including, you know, viral and bacterial both. Um, but, you know, when we're looking specifically at these, these bacterial infections, um, so things like chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, rates of infection for all of those are increasing and they're increasing in women too. Um, the rates for gonorrhea specifically have gone up about 40% in the last five or six years. Uh, and we're seeing the biggest increases in women from about 15 to 30. Um, so, so it's a big issue. Um, and when you couple that with the fact that we're seeing this really big increase in antimicrobial resistance, it starts to become, you know, a really serious problem in the public health spectrum because we're running out of ways to treat these infections. Yeah. Um, Quick question on that. The statistics you just mentioned, is it that it's also increasing in men in that young age group, but they're not being like going to the doctor and being diagnosed or is so it like some of more it. women yeah. on women? Like, or do we know why it's predominantly women or is it our, is it our bacteria? Is it our bacteria so that some, are leading yeah. us? So, more so, some, so there are a bunch of, yeah, so there are a bunch of things going on, right? So, you know, some populations of men, there are increases in infection rates, but, yeah. you know, not all, not all the way across the board. Um, women in general are a little bit more susceptible or more susceptible to infection. Mm -hmm. um, so for, for um, heterosexual sex, women are more likely to actually be infected. It's more efficient. Um, the infection is more efficient. And some of that comes down to just the, the way that the tissue of that reproductive tract of the female reproductive tract is, is made, right. Mm -hmm. It's more delicate than, you know, the skin that's on a penis. Um, and the environment of the vagina and the cervix is really conducive to supporting bacterial growth. Um, so, so in general, I think women are more likely to wind up with an infection, um, and um, another quick question, know, do condoms protect against gonorrhea? They do. Yeah. They do. But you have to, you know, that, that means that you have to use a barrier protection method. Yeah. And, it does not work know, on it, the nightstand y'all. It only works exactly. when it's actually on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. And so again, you know, that comes down to, you know, a really frank conversation with your sexual partners. Um, and in some instances, you know, the condom just doesn't happen and you wind up with an infection. And, you know, there are female condoms out there, but they're expensive. They're hard to find. Um, a lot of people say that they're uncomfortable. They decrease sensitivity. So, you know, they're not really a fantastic uh, alternative, but they do work. It's just, yeah. again, it comes back down to that women's health bias where they're more difficult to find and probably less likely to be used in, in general, um, but they are out there. Um, there's also no vaccine against gonorrhea, right? So something like there HPV, be, they're... Like, has just no one tried or is it some no. kind of bacteria that's like so adapting so different all the time you can't even make one? Well, so there there have been efforts to make a vaccine for, for gonorrhea for decades. It was a big focus, hmm. um, you know, it starting back in probably the sixties. Uh, and there really just hasn't been, so there's been a lot of work put into trying to develop a vaccine. And so far there really just hasn't been anything that's been very effective because like you said, because of the way that the bacteria adapts to the environment, it's, it undergoes um, phase variation. 
Um, so it, it can like modify its outer surface on a really, uh, a really, um, it can modify its outer surface very, very quickly, very, very efficiently. Um, so that means that like when you're trying to generate a, a typical vaccine, you know, it may only work the first time, the second time. Um, and then you're seeing something that vaccine, the antibodies produced by that vaccine are seeing something new. Um, there's a, there's a trial going on um, right now looking at some cross reactivity between uh, a vaccine against uh, Neisseria meningitis Neisseria meningitidis, um, and, and it looks like it might have um, some. It might offer some protection against gonorrhea, but it's still in the really early stages of trying to like figure out why that's actually the case. Yeah. Um, so so yeah. So we really you know the options for for preventing an infection come down to barrier protection barrier, yeah. methods right now. And, you know, no one likes the idea of a bacterial infection in their genitals, but can you also tell us, like, what are the consequences specifically for females having an mm -hmm. infection like gonorrhea? Yeah. So if you, so, so infections in women um, tend to be more often asymptomatic, right? So that is a complication mm -hmm. right off the bat. And asymptomatic um, means no symptoms, right? No symptoms, right. Yeah. And when you do experience symptoms, it, it's often that those symptoms are mistaken for something else. Mm. So right there, you already have someone who either has an asymptomatic infection or thinks that it's a yeast infection or, or BV, they may not seek appropriate treatment soon enough. And That's if right. that infection goes on longer and longer and longer, you you run the risk of developing pelvic inflammatory disease. Um, and that's a really serious issue. Um, can lead to things like an increased risk of uh, ectopic pregnancy, can cause chronic pain, um, can lead to infertility. Uh, in the short term, you can wind up with an abscess in a fallopian tube or on your ovary, and that can be life-threatening. Um, so, you know, the way to get around that is through periodic STD testing, uh, barrier protection methods. But again, like nothing, nothing is going to solve the problem completely. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you have to have like layers of intervention. Um, and some of those are better than others. Uh, some of those are more effective than others. Do we find that there is a, like a trend in misdiagnosing women that actually have gonorrhea because the symptoms may, you know, be very similar to yeast infection or UTI. I'm asking because we see this a lot in our, you know, in our community with endometriosis or even uh, gynecological cancers. Like the symptoms right. are cramping and heavy bleeding and the doctors are like, well, yeah, you got a heavy flow, go home, like take some Tylenol. Right. And then all of a sudden women have stage four ovarian cancer. Yeah. So for gonorrhea, is it something similar where we're actually really misdiagnosing women at a high rate? I don't necessarily think that it's it's as, as egregious mm -hmm. as, you know, misdiagnosis of, of other issues. Yeah. Um, because, you know, you, if you, I think it's pretty standard practice that, you know, if you take a sexual history, one of the first steps that happens after that stage, once the person winds up in a clinic is just kind of like a blanket treatment with antibiotics. Right. And so the, the, the diagnostic methods and tests for gonorrhea are, are pretty good, but it just, it means that the person has to be able to have access to a, a clinic, right? And we and know that's that that's not equal. Issue. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So we definitely talk about accessibility and stuff. Well, you're you're studying the vaginal microbiome, right? And how it relates to gonorrhea. Is that true? Uh so yeah. So I'm one of the things that I'm working on right now is trying to understand how Neisseria gonorrhea interacts with the other bacteria that are present. Mm -hmm. Um so so 
that gets into this whole story about bacterial vaginosis. That's how Melissa and I ended up working on this project together because she's, you know, the the expert on BV. Um, and so one of the things that's been observed is that bacterial vaginosis can increase susceptibility to, to sexually transmitted infection, not just gonorrhea, things like chlamydia, other, other uh, infections as well. But, you know, a lot all of the STIs, all, all, all viral, STIs, yeah. bacterial, and parasitic. Yes. Hmm. So, and, and the reasons behind that aren't completely defined yet. And they, there's likely a different explanation for each sexually transmitted mm. infection as to why BV increases the susceptibility to infection. Right. Um, so, you know, one of the things that we're interested in is looking at that intersection between gonorrhea and, and the vaginal microbiome and trying to figure out like, what about those, those like floral bacteria, the native flora, how do they set the stage for an active infection? Um, and, you know, that to me is like absolutely fascinating because we're not just looking at, you know, the interaction of the bacteria with the host. We're looking at bacterial bacterial interactions and seeing how they compete with each other and how they uh, can like help each other out um, in that host environment. And then, you know, trying to relate that to the long term consequences for, you know, the person that's hosting all those bacteria. Yeah. And quick question for clarification. BV is an imbalance of your own bacteria, right? It's not right. an invasion of other bacteria, right? Yeah. Right, right. Well, well uh, yeah, sorry. Oh. It, it, can, it can be. So, BV, uh, sorry, go ahead, Melissa. Go ahead, Melissa. Tell well, us. What is it? What's so BV? we know that the, the lactobacilli are what contribute to health and homeostasis within the vaginal compartment. Right. And so there are many different disturbances that can occur in a woman to make them shift or have a depletion of those lactobacilli and of overgrowth of these anaerobic organisms, which mm. we refer to as BV associated bacteria. And that's that BV state, which is a dysbiotic state. However, you know, it's because it's polymicrobial that we can't satisfy Koch's postulates. And so we can't say it's sexually transmitted because it we can't take one pathogen and transfer it to someone else and say, okay, it's sexually transmitted. It's a polymicrobial consortium of these bacteria, right? Yeah. And so I would uh, say that the field as a whole um, would buy into the fact that it is sexually transmitted, um, not maybe wholeheartedly, but um, that is one of those occurrences. We know that women um, often get BV after they have sex. Yeah. And that's yeah. women that have sex with women and women that have sex with men, either one. So, yeah. So it's not just semen changing their pH. It really is like potentially right. microbes and microbes Transfer talking to each other. Those, yep, yeah. Bacteria. Exactly. Uh, oh mm -hmm. my gosh. That's so fascinating. I love this stuff. I love <laughs> it so much. Vaginas and microbes are my favorite. <laughs> All I need to do is talk about genetic sequencing and I will be crazy. Um, let me, <laughs> I'm like, oh my, where are we? Where I didn't mean to sidetrack you. No, no, no. It's so good. It's so, it's so good. Um, so, uh, last question for you, Kate, before we turn to Melissa and ask her about her research, what would be like your hope of coming out of your research? You know, what's the goal of studying this? Is this something like for probiotics for prevention or like, is tell me what's your goal? Well, okay. So 
again, I'm a basic scientist. I think that's the coolest part about all of it is, is looking at the, the fine detail, the nitty gritty, understanding how stuff works. And that's why but, I left. Cause I was like, okay, yeah, but what do we do now? And they were like, we study it more. And I'm like, what? No, why? <laughs> so, <laughs> do something. Right. But, but in order to treat something, right. In order to be really, really good at treating something, you have to understand how it works. Yeah. So that's what I hope comes out of all of this is that we're able to, to figure out what exactly is happening. Why is it happening? And then, okay, now that we know the nuts and bolts of it, can we go in and can we make a targeted treatment that prevents that step that it needs to colonize? Can we prevent that from happening? Can we, you know, modify the microbiome of the reproductive tract in such a way that we can prevent infection because we can prevent colonization? Or can we like shut off specific genes that prevent that bacteria from being able to um, cause damage or or, you know, can we do a, a transplant um, and restore somebody's vaginal microbiome to a healthy state? Yeah. Um, so for me, that's that's the end goal, right? But I, I'm really interested in in understanding like how all of those how all of those factors are being put in place first so that we can, you know, figure out how to fix stuff by, you know, looking at those mechanisms. I love it. Random question that just popped in my head. I heard that pretty much all lubrication kills your microbiome, even the lube they use at the OB-GYN office. Is that true? Y'all know. <laughs> so we That's have been studying question. that. Yeah, we have been studying that. We have a couple publications on that and um, in, com in collaboration with uh, Rebecca Brotman at University of Maryland. Um, but yeah, so what we... Um, found was that uh, not only do they impact those lactobacilli, um, and we know that like feminine spray is not a good thing, nothing floral smelling, all of it impacts your lactobacilli. You shouldn't be putting anything in or on it. It's a self-cleaning oven if you haven't heard that on your podcast before. We, um, we like to say it's an eyeball. You don't have to wash it. Yeah. <laughs> the eyeball washes itself. Don't put anything in your eyeball. But yeah. that's actually a really important thing. We see a lot of uh, femtech companies saying like, oh, pH balancing, but it's external. And I'm like, all right, well, how the hell does it balance your pH if it's not only outside of the labia? Like that mechanically doesn't make sense to me. And also I'm like, we're pro don't put anything in your vagina that's not supposed to be there you know so where where do you melissa are you a big like this is what you yeah. preach to all the girls don't, like, yeah. like I, don't wash don't it. put anything in it except for water you know you don't even i mean you could put soap outside but you know you really don't need to put those inside and we have shown that the compounds in the lubricants and some of these are the same compounds that you find in soaps mm -hmm. um and then anything with the floral all of that you know the warming the lubricants that warm i could go over the specific compounds like chlorhexidine gluconate you know those are not good they actually we've shown impact the growth of the lactobacilli which are the healthy bugs but not only that, they actually damage the epithelium. Mm. So you, you're getting it from both sides, right? You're impacting the host epithelium, the human epithelium, and then you're also impacting the good bugs that contribute to our vaginal health, right? So what do you so. say for us ladies who like to slip and slide? Like, what do, you, <laughs> what do we use? Like, <laughs> Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I... <laughs> 
I do consult for a company, so it is <laughs> a conflict of interest for me to say anything. At okay, this okay. We'll, but we'll put you a can pin read in it. our articles. Okay. And that was before we were um, uh, working with any uh, companies, but you Products. want low osmolality um, and you want, you know, nothing that shifts that pH. Um, and you don't want all of these excipients like chlorhexidine, gluconate, and parabens. Mm. Well, you know what? We will uh, link that publication in our show notes. (laughs) Listeners, you can go check out those show notes um, and and send Melissa a DM asking what her (laughs) favorite lube is. Okay. Um, Well, Melissa, I actually want to dive into your research. It was absolutely fascinating. Again, I was like, I have so many questions for her. And so one of the things I want to really focus on with you is how the vaginal microbiome relates to other conditions, right? And Mm -hmm. not just STIs, but like a whole bunch of other stuff. So why don't we kick off with um, what is the relationship between, we'll do vaginal microbiome and cancer and endometriosis, not endometriosis, adenomyosis. Um, Unless those are two totally different relations, then we'll separate the two diseases. Okay. Yeah, they're pretty, yeah. Okay. First uh, cancer, vaginal microbiome and cancer. What? Like bacteria, cancer, what's happening here? Yeah, so that's uh, one of our most, I think, exciting stories and and have really been a focus of my research program the last kind of eight to 10 years. And it really came about um, with working with another uh, female researcher. She's a a GYN oncologist. Her name's uh, Dr. Dana Chase. She's amazing. And we came up with this idea after talking about a collaboration of, you know, what is it about the cervical vaginal microenvironment? And that's what I get super geeked up about. Um, is it that, you know, drives HPV to stick around and cause cervical cancer? Uh. And so we know HPV is the causative agent, right? We know that's the bug that causes uh, cancer. However, 90% of women clear HPV no problem. It's the other 10% that get persistent HPV infection that leads to dysplasia that then um, goes into cancer, right? And so we know, as we just mentioned, so if you have bacterial vaginosis or any dysbiosis, that's going to set you up for HPV infection, Mm, right? So you're at a higher risk of getting HPV in the first place, but it doesn't stop there. Now we found, and not just us, us and others around the globe have found that if you have HPV and you have dysbiosis, you're more likely to get dysplasia. If you, again, have dysplasia or sorry, dysplasia and then also a dysbiotic vaginal microbiome, you're more likely to progress to cancer. And what's dysplasia, just real quick? So dysbiosis is an imbalance of the biome, of right? Of the bacteria. And then yeah. cervical dysplasia is that abnormal pap smear that continues to progress that uh. you need to have some type of treatment to get rid of, right? And so the dysplasia is just a change in the cells um, that line the cervix that mm-hmm. is kind of shifting towards cancer. There's yep. uncontrolled cell growth. They're abnormal, right? Yep. And yep. so some women will actually regress. So they'll have dysplasia and they'll regress from it. Yep. And those women are more likely to have lactobacilli in their vaginal compartment. So super cool. Um, we're really interested in pursuing this further, but it also led us to more research to better understand if there's a link between endometrial cancer and the microbiome. And so we're, um, analyzing our data right now and stay tuned for that, um, 
Because endometrial cancer, is there a virus that's triggering that? Like cervical cancer, we know is HPV. Okay. Yeah. But potentially there's still a relationship. We don't know. Well, we think- Well, not between HPV, but something. Right. Yeah. And there may be ascension of those bad bugs to the upper reproductive tract that influence that lining as well through the same mechanisms that we're studying in the lower female reproductive tract. So these bugs are altering. So that's what we're also interested in is now that we've seen this link, it's like, okay, well, which of these BV associated bacteria are driving carcinogenesis? Is it Mm -hmm. one bug? Is it a community of bugs? Um, Why is this happening? And so we know that, you know, a lot of these bugs are causing inflammation, but we're starting to better understand other kind of hallmarks of cancer, if you will. You know, what are they doing to the metabolism? What are they doing to the epithelial cells in terms of barrier function? How are they regulating proliferation and apoptosis? You know, those types of mechanisms. All of my favorite words. Oh my God, I love it. I love it so much. Um, I, you know, it's, Actually, interesting. I was di- I had a diagnosis of HPV in college, you know, typical, you know. But I thought, oh my god, whoa! I have an STD. Oh my god! Everyone practically has HPV. So I, yes, but you know, at true. the time, I was like so right. ashamed. Um, but then in grad school, I had the abnormal pap smear and they're like, that's okay. Like, we'll just keep checking. You're young, you're healthy. And I was like, oh my God, I have cancer. And then like the next year, they were like, no, nah, you're good. And so, like, I guess. I would right. be a, a good control subject for years test. Like, okay. Right. You probably had lactobacilli <laughs> that yeah. helped you so out to clear that I'm infection. So proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, another interesting thing that you study right on your website was this relationship between the gut and the vaginal microbiome. This is very interesting to me. And I have some questions that I've been just sitting on waiting to ask somebody who knows oh. <laughs> what they're talking about. Because, you know, (laughs) you know, as like I said, studying bacteria and genetics in grad school myself, there was a and it was also at Baylor College of Medicine and we have a huge microbiome um, department Mm -hmm. there. But everyone was always talking about the gut, the gut, the gut, the gut, the gut, the gut. And I'd be like, uh, hello, there's like this other place on your body, at least for females that has a ton of bacteria, you know, and I'm wondering, like. First of all, if how is their relationship? And then also, like, what are things that we're assigning as the cause being your gut health? But like, how do we know it's not your vaginal microbiome causing autism or depression or all these other things that they're like showing these links between a leaky gut and, you know, bacteria getting in your bloodstream and then causing all these other things? It's like, well, has anyone checked if that's actually coming from your the vagina? So I'm just going to stop there. Obviously, I have a lot of questions. Tell us what is the relation, if any, between these biomes? Yeah. So that it's, you know, it's a new area of study for sure. Right. And like you said, most people are interested in the gut. Um, And it is incredibly important for all of our mental health, everything. There's well-established communication between, you know, our gut and our brain. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, one thing that might be a little underappreciated is that there are bacteria that can metabolize estrogen and can impact the amount of estrogen that are in, that's in our bodies, basically. Uh, yeah, I and, did not know that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. And so it's called the estrobilome. And Estrobilome? Um, yeah. <laughs> so there's not a lot of people studying this. Um, it's difficult to study, um, but we're starting to make some headway with some of our studies. And, you know, you 
you are absolutely right that a lot of these women's health conditions too have like this gut link. I think you mentioned ovarian cancer at the beginning and cramping Mm -hmm. and things like that, chronic pelvic pain, endometriosis. There seems to be a gut link, a gut microbiota Mm -hmm. link, but the, but you can look at it indirectly in terms of the gut and this link with these estrogen metabolizing bacteria impacting hypo estrogenic states or hyperestrogenic states. And then that estrogen can impact the vaginal epithelium and thereby the vaginal microbiome composition. Got it. So, so kind of, like, what I hear you bit. Yeah. What I hear you saying is like microbes in the gut metabolizing estrogen, which therefore affects your gynecological microbiome. And so it's not like your small intestine is like knock, knocking on your fallopian tube. Like there's, yeah, it's, exactly. it's, in, it's that way. Okay. Interesting. The only link I can make with that for you is that, you know, some of these BV associated organisms have been shown to have like a rectal reservoir, right? Mm-hmm. So they're hanging out in the rectum and then, you know, depending on hygiene practices, things like that, you know, they could be swapped around. Yep. Um, so there is that link. Um, and then, you know, you have the common mucosal immune system. So you have a lot of immune trafficking throughout the body mm-hmm. that there is communication between these mucosal sites. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so what do you think about like all these studies that have been done on a bacteria that they're claiming came from the gut that's in the brain now causing these things, or it's not the full bacteria. It's like pieces of the bacteria that have broken off. Right. And and that's what's causing these like inflammation and all this stuff. Do you think that potentially some of these studies, actually it's a bacteria that's from the vagina versus the gut? Or like, have we done good controls to make sure like, no, 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 this is a gut thing. Yeah, I think the gut link is well established. And, you know, there's more studies coming out every day. And there there really is a mechanism by which you can have an influence of gut microbiome influencing Mm -hmm. brain health, mental health, anxiety, stress, depression. But I will say that we do have some data and um, others have data that... um, suggest that if you are having stress, that that will impact that shift. So that's one of those stressors that can impact your vaginal microbiome composition. So you could kind of make that relationship, right? If you have gut dysbiosis and it's affecting anxiety or stress, then that could then impact your vaginal microbiome composition yeah. as well. So we're really intrigued by that relationship and we're yeah. starting to do more clinical studies where we can look at quality of life, mental health, those types of aspects to better understand how that those stressors might be not only influencing the gut microbiome, but also the vaginal microbiome. Yeah. Do you think that it's possible we could discover a leaky vagina syndrome? Like we have leaky (laughs) gut, you know, that leads to things. Is there leaky vagina? Yeah, that's that's really um, thought provoking. So the gut has a different mechanism. And so if you think about the the microanatomy of the gut, you have a single epithelium, right? A single layer of epithelium. Mm -hmm. And it's like hermetically sealed, meaning it is is like sealed off, right? And it's because you don't want it to leak at all, right? Mm-hmm. But bacteria can influence that, like you said, and you can get uh, leaky gut, right? And that opens up what we call tight junctions that keep that really nice and sealed, right? Yeah. So the vaginal epithelium is a stratified squamous epithelium. So there's multiple layers and oh. those layers are not hermetically sealed. So it is a looser network of tight junctions within the vagina. Um, so 
I guess you could look at it that way. But then also we know that those bacteria, especially dysbiotic bacteria, can influence epithelial barrier function. So again, those, even though they're looser to begin with, mm-hmm. you can impact those tight junctions through that bacteria. So you're right. You could have a, a leaky vagina, I guess, um, in terms of the epithelium. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would maybe say it's an impaired epithelium, epithelial barrier, but yes. Yeah. And that wow. could could lead to issues. And, you know, that's a mechanism of uh, also sexually transmitted infection, right? Yeah. We'd also have to think of another name because after I said it out loud, I was yeah. like, there's <laughs> lots of things that leak out of your vagina, Britt. So like we'd have to come up with <laughs> yeah. some other name. Yeah. But anyways, um, <laughs> you know, this has been such an amazing interview. I just want to keep talking to both of you for the rest of the day. Uh, I want to make sure I'm highlighting something that I just found to be so moving. Melissa, on your website, is your work with the Native American population. Can I just want to make sure we're we're holding some space to acknowledge that important work. Can you tell us about your collaboration with that community and do you have any advice for our listeners for innovating for that community or working with them? Oh, thank you. I appreciate you uh, making space for that conversation. So um, I I mentioned that I was rural raised here in Arizona. So underrepresented, uh, understudied women here in Arizona, is really special to me, right? Mm-hmm. So the Latina population as well as the Native American population have higher rates of, um, well, we think, uh, we don't really know for Native Americans, higher rates of bacterial vaginosis that could relate to their higher rates of HPV acquisition. So we know that Latinas as well as Native Americans um, here and beyond um, do have higher rates of HPV as well as cervical cancer still, even after vaccination. Mm -hmm. And so we do need to study these um, populations better, but then also in collaboration with them. So I'm a part of a uh, PACHI U54 through NIH. It's sponsored by the National Cancer Institute. National Cancer Institute. And it's a partnership with NAU, so Northern Arizona University and the University of Arizona. That's where we're at. (laughs) Um, And then we work really closely with our uh, communities. So in terms of like speaking to other researchers per se, you know, working with other Native American researchers, uh, the problem there is um, Native Americans are the least represented as physicians and scientists of any minority group. And so uh, part of our U54 is to train Native American trainees, have them in our labs so that they can go through that pipeline and then become those uh, professors that are studying or those physicians that are are helping their communities um, so we can have better engagement with Native American communities because there's been a lot of past harms. Mm -hmm. And so we are very sensitive to that and work very closely with our community partners. Um, We have a community board, advisory board that helps to advise us on our projects. And so um, that's, I guess, those are a couple uh, points. But, you know, in terms of women's health, there's uh, a lot to be done within these understudied, underrepresented minority groups. Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for the work you do. Is there a way that our listeners can maybe get involved or support this work in some way? Oh, that's a that's a great question. <laughs> we are always looking for funding. So if anyone wants <laughs> to just uh, give us a generous donation. No, um, I 
I think uh, it's just that awareness too, mm-hmm. um, and um, educating themselves. Uh, and I can provide you some uh, website information. We've been doing a lot of informational videos um, that are more culturally appropriate and tailored to the the Native American communities that we work with, um, bringing about cancer awareness, screening awareness. Um, it's still so important to go and get your well woman exam, even if you've been HPV vaccinated. I think all your lis- listeners could, you know, benefit from that information because I think a lot of women, unfortunately, start to think that they don't need to because mm. they're vaccinated. Yeah. So, oh, ladies, you're impressive. <laughs> you're amazing. Vaginas, bacteria, genetics, you know, (laughs) disenfranchised groups of women, like all the things you're doing such good work. Thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having having us. Thank you for listening to my episode with Dr. Kate Rhodes and Dr. Melissa Herbs Kralovitz. Learn more about the research by visiting their laboratory website that's linked in the show notes. Be sure to subscribe to the Femtech Focus newsletter, join our virtual community, and follow us on social media. Share the show with a friend and continue to advocate for women's health innovation, because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.